the world in which we live is complex. It's complicated and it can be quite confusing. We live in today what is known as a multicultural, multi-faith world. In, in the past, people of other faiths and cultures tended to live over there, you know, someplace else, not, not right around us. And the majority of the people we mixed with were of the same culture and the same basic faith, Christianity. Even if they, even if they didn't practice it, we were known as a as a Christian nation. Today, the the fastest growing religion in the U.S. is paganism. That's startling, isn't it? When we think that we are a Christian nation, the fastest growing religion in the U.S. is paganism. Uh, many people today will just simply call it unaffiliated. But people have largely turned away from the church to just simply brace no faith at all. Just whatever feels good to me, that's what I'm going to do. And ultimately, that is what we always have known as paganism. People are generally less concerned about truth, and they are more concerned about comfort and and feeling happy and feeling self-fulfilled. And so uh, if there's some kind of a religion or some kind of a group or some kind of uh, a support uh, system that they could get into where they feel comfortable and they feel happy and they feel self-fulfilled, then that's, that's my religion. That's what I am. And this is reflected in, in the political correctness of our day where it is considered unacceptable to say that someone else do, what someone else does or believes is wrong. But if it, is, if it is contrary to the word of God, it is wrong. It's that simple. But, but our culture says, no, we can't say that. Talk shows today reflect this. There, there is generally in talk shows with, with different heads that are, you know, trying to hold up a different view or whatever, they, they exchange their views, but less often is there any conclusion that is reached as to what is actually right and what is actually wrong. We just leave it up in the air that whatever you feel is right for you, then that's right for you. And many people today believe that there's no such thing as absolute truth. And, 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 and basically, we humans make our own truth. And they are generally happy as long as everyone else's truth agrees with my truth. You see, that's, that's where we've come to. Um, don't push your truth on me, but I'm going to push my truth on you. So from a purely human perspective... It is probably true that everyone's opinion is equally valid, but such a position leads to meaninglessness, right? If every person's opinion has value, then, then we live in a life that's meaningless, and Solomon, Solomon wrote about this in the book of Ecclesiastes, a whole book, many, many centuries ago. I have seen all of the works that are done under the sun, and indeed all is vanity and grasping for the wind. There's nothing there. 
if we are living a life strictly on, on, a, on a horizontal plane without a relationship with God. And most people in our world today don't want a relationship with God. Oh, they want a God of their own choosing. They just don't want the God of the Bible. They don't want a God that's going to tell them that this is right and this is wrong and this is absolute and, 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 you, and this is sin in your life. Most people say, I never sinned in my life. And yet they're not walking with God. They're not, they don't understand that we are all born with a sin nature. We are all <coughs> enmity uh, away from God. Uh, we are as bad off as we can be. We don't do what is the worst thing, but as sinners, we are destined for hell without a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> so for the Christian, there is a strong belief in absolute truth, not a, not a truth which we can concoct on our own, but as revealed from God, who is truth. God is truth. It always, it always boggled me. I wrote a paper years ago in, in, for college um, it, it, when we, our school system took God out of school. Well, God is truth. Without God, you don't have truth. You have man's opinion. And so what are we doing in our schools today? With no truth, we just have what our teachers tell us is right. And that's based upon what they feel is right. Or what the seminary or the schools they went to said is right, which is many times contrary to the word of God. So the challenge and the responsibility placed upon us, therefore, is to handle this revealed truth correctly so that God's word of truth remains, the, uh, re- remains um, true at all times. And that we therefore will receive his approval and not be ashamed before him because we have done a bad job by distorting or denying his revealed truth. Now, of course, the supreme revelation, the, the, the principle, if you will, of God's truth is the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, Christ said in John fourteen six, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And there's, there's, there's no other way to heaven except through Jesus Christ. Paul, in writing this letter to Timothy, has commended him for faithfully receiving God's word of truth and has instructed him to faithfully entrust this gospel to faithful men, to faithful people who will handle it correctly and share it with others. So the primary task of the Christian worker then is to convey the word of truth. Now, there are two different kinds of, of workers that Paul talks to us about in, these, in, in, this, in this letter that he wrote to Timothy. There are those who, who are approved, and they are tried, and they are tested, and they are found to be true. And there are those who ought to be ashamed of themselves for corrupting the truth. Two categories. Which category are you in? One or the other. So what are the criteria by which some are approved and some are shamed? It is how they handle 
It's how they treat the word of truth. Is their handling of God's revealed word of truth accurate and straight and true? So in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 14, Paul says, Remind them of these things, charging them before the Lord not to strive about words, to no profit, to the ruin of the hearers. So Paul tells Timothy to solemnly charge those under his pastoral ministry in the presence of God that if they misuse the Bible, it will be to their ruin. Now, we get our word uh, catastrophe from the Greek word that is translated here in our text for ruin. It's the same word that we get catastrophe. So Paul means ultimately spiritual ruin. I can't think of anything that is more catastrophic than for a person to be spiritually ruined. (coughs) And so he names then in this portion of Scripture... um, Uh, Hymenaeus and Philetus, who had gone astray from the truth, upsetting the faith of some with their misuse of the Bible. And so Paul, Paul is saying that while the misuse of the Bible leads to ungodliness, God's people should use the Bible to grow in godliness. So the first thing that we should note, and, and, and it should startle us, is that it is possible to use the Bible to make progress in ungodliness. And that's what we see there in in verses 14 and 16 down through verse 18. So we already read 14, so let me read 16 to 18 right now. But shun profane and idle babblings, for they will increase to more ungodliness, and their message will spread like cancer, Hymenaeus and Philetus are of this sort, who have strayed concerning the truth, saying that the resurrection is already past, and they overthrow the faith of some. Now the words in, in verse 16 there, that they will increase in more ungodliness, are literally, they will make further progress in their ungodliness. So the false teachers, they, they claim that their, their teaching would help you move ahead in your spiritual life. We have, we have false teachers on the radio and television that all the time are saying, just listen to me, just follow me. And actually, they are leading us astray. And so we need to be very careful. We need to, we, we need to mark those. So the false teachers claim that their teaching would help you move ahead spiritually. Paul Sack sarcastically says, yes, you will make progress all right, progress in ungodliness. And so then Paul piles up words <coughs> to drive home this, this frightening point. In verse 14, there you see that he says, of no profit, of ruin of the hearers. In verse 16, more ungodliness. Verse 17, spreads like cancer. Verse 18, stayed, uh, um, strayed concerning the truth and overthrow the faith of some. So all of these things that he, that he said there in, in verses 14, 16, 17, and 18, are all showing how the false teachers will lead people astray. And if we handle the word of God in the wrong way, then we're going to make progress, but we'll make progress in ungodliness. 
So the improper use of the Bible is not a, a, just a harmful activity. It destroys lives. People spend eternity in hell because somebody mishandled the word of God. So we see why this, this is such an important thing that we know what the word of God says. And we know that we can trust the teacher of the word. And we learn how to depend upon the Holy Spirit to show us personally what the word is saying. And that's one reason that James writes in James 3.1 and warns, Let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. And there's all kind of people who, who want to be teachers for one reason or other. A lot of the time, it's just they want to be up on the platform. They want to be in the center. They want to have everybody just saying how wonderful they are. And yet they're mishandling the word of God. And James says, don't do that. You're going to receive a stricter judgment. That's why Paul here warns Timothy in verse 14, remind them of these things, charging them before the Lord. Now, these things probably referred to the hymn just mentioned, which says that if we endure faithfully, we talked about this last week there in verses 11 and 12 and 13. Uh, this is a faithful saying, if we die with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. If we are faithless, he, he remains faithful. He cannot, cannot deny himself. And so, so if we are faithful, we will reign with Christ. But if we deny him, he's going to deny us. Now, maybe you've already heard it, but, but I'd just like to, you know, um, remind them again, um, Paul is saying, um, you know, they, they've probably heard this, but just tell them again, Timothy. There's something about repetition, isn't there? When we, when we hear something over and over and over again, or we read something over and over and over again, it begins to stick in our mind. And so do it in the presence of God, Timothy. The Bible is, is no uh, harmless uh, instrument. It's a sharp sword, and it must be handled with proper care. And so Paul, Paul mentions three, three um, improper ways of using the Bible. Number one, or A, to use the Bible for knowledge without obedience is to use it improperly. To use it for knowledge and you're not going to obey it, you are using the scripture improperly. And so in verse 14, he says, striving about words. Was a, was a notorious characteristic of the false teachers in Ephesus. And, and we can read about that, uh, and we studied about it back in, in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 6, in chapter 2 and verse 8, in chapter 6 and verses 3 to 5, and, and verses uh, uh, 20 to 21. Um, and, and so uh, they, they like to display their knowledge on peripheral matters that did not lead to godliness, but only to pride over being right. And Paul said in 1 Timothy 1.5, the pursuit of the commandment is love from a pure heart and from a good conscience and from sincere faith. And so anytime a person uses the Bible to grow in knowledge apart from godliness, 
they're heading for spiritual trouble apart from being obedient to the word. So one of the most common sins that Satan uses to trip us, is, uh, to trip us up is spiritual pride. In other words, getting us puffed up with supposed knowledge. Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians 8.1. Uh, to know God truly in his holiness and majesty simply humbles us. You cannot know the majesty and the, the extreme holiness of God without falling on your face before him. Isaiah, when he, saw, when he saw God in the temple, high and lifted up in the year that King Uzziah died, he said, I am ruined. I am undone. I'm a dead man because I've seen the Lord on the throne. So when you study the Bible, we need to always ask a couple of questions. What does this teach me about God and about myself? What does it teach me about God and about myself? And how should I apply this to my life? So we need to be careful not to misinterpret what Paul is saying here. We would be wrong here for example, to conclude that striving about words means that the, the precise words of scriptures do not matter. We would be totally wrong in that. In Galatians chapter 6, or chapter 3 and verse 16, Paul builds an argument over the fact that the promise given to Abraham, he uses the word seed, singular, rather than seeds, plural. I mean, he's being very specific. That, that verse says, now to Abraham and his seed were promises made. And it's, this is right there in the scriptures. Paul says, he does not say into seeds as of many, but as of one and to your seed who is Christ. So words are extremely important in scripture. So when he says don't strive about words, he's not saying that words aren't important here. Jesus argued from, uh, for the resurrection based on the present rather than the past tense of the Hebrew verb in Exodus chapter 3 and verse 6, where in Matthew chapter 22 and verse 30, 32, he said, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. So he he taught that the smallest letter of the law would not pass away without being fulfilled in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 17. And so you see, it's important to study the precise words of Scripture and to understand the nuances of the original languages so that we interpret what is written in a proper way. Now, also, Paul is not saying that, that growing in spiritual knowledge through Scripture is unimportant. He's not saying that at all. He, he often mentions the need to grow in spiritual knowledge and understanding. He did in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 17 to 19. In Philippians chapter 1, and verses 9 and 10. In Colossians chapter 1, and verses 9 and 10. And, and as we will see in a moment, accuracy in handling God's truth is crucial in our life. So Paul is, not, Paul is not discouraging here careful Bible study when he says striving about words. Truth matters greatly, and error always causes harm. So what's he doing? 
Well, Paul is here combating those who like to get into intellectual bantering over obscure points of the doctrine, but who are not seeking to grow in obedience to God. So these scholars like to to prove their superior intelligence by winning theological debates. But the point of scriptural knowledge is not to fill our hearts, but to change our life. And so if the word isn't changing our life, it doesn't matter how much you have of the word in your head if it doesn't change your life. I like the Howard Hendricks used to always say, don't tell me how, how many times you've been through the Bible. Tell me how many times the Bible's been through you. Is it changing your life? Are you different because you read the word? Because you study the word. So, so it's not about how much knowledge we can put in our head. It's how it changes our life. To use the Bible for knowledge without application is to misuse it. But then also, number two, to use the Bible for worldly uh, ends is to use it improperly. So uh, there in verse 16, uh, Paul refers to shun profane and idle babblings. Back in in 1 Timothy 6.20, he used the same phrase in reference to avoiding the profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. So he may be talking about a different aspect of striving about words. The the, the word worldly means permanent or, or, or it means the idea is more like being trodden underfoot, uh, profane, babblings, trodden down is what, what he's using here. So it, it has the nuance then of trafficking lightly in the things of God or using God in the Bible for worldly gain. So this sort of thing is, is rampant in American Christianity in our day today. It really is. Um, for example, the health, wealth, um, heresy is, is perhaps the mo- most blatant form of what Paul's talking about here. Also, many Christian self-help books approach the Bible from the perspective of how to gain what you want in life, rather than reverently coming to the Bible to learn how to please God. Paul talks about that in Colossians 1.10. It is using the Bible for worldly success. Now, I want you to notice two things about this. First of all, such false teachers are always popular. They're out there. Uh, Their message will spread, Paul says, like cancer. You don't have to help cancer spread, do you? (laughs) You don't have to do anything. Once it starts in the body, it's going to spread all by itself. And because they appeal to the flesh, these false teachers never lack a following. Some of the largest churches in America use the Bible to help people succeed in their worldly, selfish goals. But don't judge a church by how big it is, but rather by how sound is the teaching in producing genuine godliness in people's life. That's how we judge a church. So people who who buy into this kind of false teaching often testifies of how much they've been helped, and, and often outwardly it seems true. 
But anytime people are helped out of their trouble without learning to depend more on the living God and submit fully to his lordship, it's false help. It's shallow. There's no real depth there because we need to depend more on the lordship of Jesus Christ in our life. And then secondly, Christians are to avoid such teachers and their teachings. Steer clear of them. Don't waste your time watching them on television or reading their books. When you recognize their false teachers, shut them off. Don't keep watching them to see what they're going to say next. When Augustine wrote over 1,500 years ago, what he wrote applies for us today. He says, for to believe what you please... And not to believe what you please is to believe yourself and not the gospel. Isn't that what we have in our world today? To believe what you please and to believe what you, what you don't, what doesn't please you, you're just, you're just believing yourself. You're not believing the gospel. You're coming up with your own religion. And that's what a lot of the false teachers are doing today. So by appealing to the flesh and the lure of the, the, the world, these false teachers draw away many people uh, who, who are not fully submitted to the lordship of Christ and his gospel on the cross. So to use your Bible for worldly ends is to misuse it. But then also to use the Bible to teach half-truths as truth is to use it improperly. Half-truth as truths. Um, there in verse 18, who have strived concerning the truth, saying that the resurrection is already passed and they overthrew the faith of some. Now, these men were not totally wrong. They were teaching a half-truth as if it was the whole truth, which is often Satan's method. They were teaching that the resurrection already had taken place. They had had verses from Paul to, to back up their view that the resurrection already taken place. Because you see, he wrote often of the fact that Christ is risen and we are risen with him. But he also taught that there is a future resurrection of the body which these men denied. They argued that the resurrection was only spiritual and thus was an an, an accomplished fact. It already happened. Now, some people wonder, well, what's the big deal? I mean, why was this worth even contending about? Uh, whether it had or hadn't happened, or, or whether it was half-truth or whole truth or, or whatever. Well, Paul answers that question in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where he says that if there is no future literal bodily resurrection then Christ is not even risen, and our faith is worthless. That's pretty important. <laughs> That's pretty serious. Mark it well. Heresy always begins as a truth out of balance. A truth out of balance. That's where heresy begins. There's always an element of truth in the teaching of the cults. Yes, we believe in Jesus. We believe that he came to earth. We believe he was a great man. We believe, yes, he died a martyr's death. But we also feel like you need to do all of these other things in order to go to heaven. 
That's heresy. You don't add anything to salvation through the cross of Jesus Christ. You don't say, well, I just want to, I just want to make sure. It's like, it's like going over to Africa and preaching to them uh, about how they have to accept Christ as their Savior, and they have their witch doctors, and they have all that kind of stuff, and the sacrifices. They say, well, we'll just add Jesus' salvation along with all the other things that we believe just to be safe. You're going to hell. What, how safe is that? It's heresy. You do not mix anything with the gospel, with the truth. And so there, there's, there's always that element. That's how they entice people. They, they even have verses to back up their errors. So they, they prey on the untaught who are looking for something more in their faith. I just need a little something more. What more do we need than Christ crucified for our sins? That's all we need. But they lead people away from depending upon the living God. If somebody, if somebody handed you a, a, a $3 bill with a picture of Frank Sinatra on it, um, would you be fooled? <laughs> of course not. See, that, that's nonsense. That's why, that's why we have to examine the popular worldly teaching cleverly cloaked with the Bible that are flooding our churches today. They promote half-truths as if they were the truth of God. So before, before we look at the positive side of how to use the Bible to grow in godliness, let me just give you three tests of sound doctrine that will, will keep you from being taken in by the false teachers. First of all, does it honor God and exalt Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord? Does it honor God and exalt Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord? Sound doctrine always lifts God up in his majesty and holiness. It always exalts Jesus as fully God and fully man who gave himself for our sin and was raised bodily, bodily from the dead. Number two, does it humble, proud, fallen sinners. Sound doctrine always brings sinners to the foot of the cross where they come to the end of their own pride and their own self-sufficiency. Number three, does it promote holiness? Sound teaching always results in obedience to the word of God and progress in holy living. So it leads to genuine love for God and for love of others. Now, now that in, in, in four, the fact is that in four out of six verses here, Paul presents the negative should alarm us enough to examine ourselves. Four out of six verses, he's pointed at the negative. So we are to use the Bible in a right way. Just using the Bible is not enough. You can use the Bible to your own destruction. And using the Bible for knowledge without obedience to promote worldly goals or to teach half-truths as the entire truth will lead to spiritual ruin, catastrophe. 
We need to be careful to use the Bible to grow, to know God, and to grow in submission to him. Now, we, we want to look at, at uh, two verses that focus on the positive. God's people should use the Bible to make progress in godliness. Verse 15 He says, be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So the Bible wasn't given in order to satisfy our curiosity about the end times or to fill our our heads with facts. It was given to help us to grow in godliness. That's why we have the Bible. And so Paul gives us four ways to use the Bible properly. Number one, the proper use of the Bible requires a proper approach. He says, be diligent. The word means to be diligent or to be zealous. We are to give constant effort to the task of of being approved unto God as unashamed workmen, which means handling God's word accurately. So this especially applies to those who teach the Bible, but it also applies to all believers who must be able to handle the Word of God correctly because you need, to, you need to study the Word of God during the week, and so you need to know how to handle it carefully. So many Christians are haphazard and lazy rather than diligent in their approach to the Word of God. They, they, they don't systematically read, study, or memorize the Scriptures. Uh, if, if they read it at all, they, they jump from passage to passage, piling up verses out of context. They aren't seeking to know God and how he wants them to think and to believe and to relate to others. They just want to check off. I do read my Bible today. And with no thought about what's this going to do to me? How is this going to help me to be a better person? How is this going to help me to be able to reflect Christ to a lost world around me? And, and so their lives and their relationships are falling apart but they don't search diligently to discover what God's word tells them to do about these problems in their life. They go off to some other person that has some self-help book and say, what do I need to do to get my relationship back together, get my life back together? How can you help me? And, And we go off into those areas where the Bible has all of the answers if we just study it accurately and apply it to our life. So the key of being diligent in God's word is to be motivated. Motivated is the key to learning. Have you ever been on an airplane and you you sit there before you taxi out of the the gate and get out onto the runway and all, and the the stewardesses, they're up there and they're giving you instructions on, you know, they hold up the... The, the thing here, and they tell you there's places to get off, you know, two, two in the back and two in the front and two here, you know, and they do the lights along the way and all of that kind of stuff. And you look around at people, nobody's paying attention to them, except the person that's the first time they've ever been on an airplane. Everybody else is reading their emails or maybe texting. And, and even after, it always, always frustrates me, even after they say, okay, you got to turn everything into airplane mode now. And, 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 and inevitably, the guy right beside you, he's the only guy that they, they didn't mean him. And it's just frustrating to me because why didn't they have him set someplace else? If he's the only guy that doesn't have to turn his phone off, he can continue to use a phone when they say turn it off. But nobody pays any attention. We're not, all we're thinking is, can you hurry it up with that so we can get on the, get out there in the runway and, and head to our destination? We're not motivated to hear 
her boring instruction. But now let's suppose that we're airborne and the pilot all of a sudden comes over the intercom and says, ladies and gentlemen, we are experiencing some severe trouble with our engines. I think most people would, they'd have their attention about that time. And we're going to have to depressurize the cabin and make an emergency landing. And so the stewardesses, uh, they're going to explain how to use the emergency breathing apparatus. Do you think he had to add, please give her your full attention? I don't think he would. I don't. I don't think he would have to be. People would be motivated, and so the key to being motivated to be diligent in God's word is to recognize I live in the presence of God, a holy God, and someday soon I will give an account to Him. His word alone contains His wisdom on how to live in, in, in a way that pleases him, which is the only way to true happiness for me. So, so I've got to be diligent to search out what the scripture says about knowing God and his wisdom for my living. One day I will stand in his presence. That should motivate us. But then also, the proper use of the Bible requires proper relationships. Present yourself approved to God. Present is used in in 2 Corinthians 11.2, Ephesians 5.27, to speak of a bride being presented to her bridegroom. It's a very personal, loving act when a young woman gives herself to a young man in marriage. So in that culture, pre-women's lib culture, it means that she was giving herself completely to him. Her devotion, her time, her body, her complete focus was now towards her husband because of his love for her and her love for him. And that's how we should come to the Bible. It's it's not just a book of principles uh, uh, for, for how to live our life. It's not just a book that we check off that we, we've read that. It, it tells us of God's enduring love for his bride. So as his bride, we should seek to please him and be available to do his will. As such, our focus should not be on what others think about us, but on what God thinks about us. And I think too many pastors in our world today fall into the trap of pleasing people rather than pleasing God. Now, while it's nice to be liked, my main focus as your pastor is to be approved to God. Our goal is to please our heavenly bridegroom who loved us and gave himself for us. When Jim Elliott... who was later martyred. Many of you have heard me talk about him. You've probably heard about him, but martyred in the jungles of Ecuador. He was a student at Wheaton College, and and he wrote in his diary, and it was read later after his death, his diary said, my grades came through this week and were, as expected, lower than last semester. However, I make no apologies and admit I've let them drag a bit for study of the Bible in which I seek the degree AUG, approved unto God. Come to the Bible to, be, to deepen your love for the Lord. Is that how you come to it? 
I want, I want to deepen my love. I want to know him better. I want, I want to spend time with him. I want, to, I want my love life to grow, to learn how we can please him more. See then, the proper use of the Bible requires a proper skill. Uh, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, handling rightly, dividing the word of truth. Here's the metaphor. Here the metaphor is that of a craftsman. Um, you're a carpenter, and God's word is your set of tools. And so rather than being sloppy and nailing together a project or whatever um, and not worrying about whether it's, whether it's plumb or, 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 or whether it's level or anything like that, um, we need to be diligent to handle the word correctly. Rightly dividing means to cut a plain path a road in a straight direction so that the traveler may go directly to his destination. Or to use a farmer's metaphor, it means to plow a straight furrow. When I was, when I was young, I was probably junior high, my grandpa finally allowed me to plow some of the fields. And I remember getting on the tractor and getting out in the field, and Grandpa was sitting there beside me, kind of on the wheel, uh, fender, and, and he said, okay, Jimmy, he said, look at something down at the end of the row where you're going, and keep your eyes on that, and drive to that. <coughs> well, I was one to look back and see that dirt turning over. And then I turned back, and I, okay, where's that at? I get down to the end, and I looked at my furrow, and it was like this, you know. I could see every place that I took my eyes off of the point that I was supposed to be looking at. And it's the same way in our Christian life. When we take our eyes off of Christ and what the importance of this book is all about, we're going to go astray. Come to the book to, to, to deepen your love life to love God more, to understand the truth so that you can grow more like Christ. And then the last one, the proper use of the Bible requires proper foundation. In verse 19, nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands having the seal. The Lord knows those who are his and let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. So it's kind of scary reading about professing Christian people who have been ruined in verse 14, who have gone astray from the truth in verse 18, and have overthrown their faith in verse 18. And, and, and many wonder, how can I keep on the path? How can I keep from, from that ruin in my life? And so Paul reminds Timothy of the foundation of the Christian life. The foundation refers to the true people of God, the church. Those who truly belong to the Lord are not carried away by false teaching. The seal on the foundation or the cornerstone has two statements, and we'll finish with this, that reflect two important aspects of our salvation. Those two statements come from the story of Korah's rebellion against Moses. Moses said in number 16 and verse 5, the Lord will show who is his and who is holy and will bring him near to himself, even the one whom he will choose. 
He warned the congregation to depart from the tents of those wicked men before God destroyed them in, in Numbers um, 16.26. And so Paul says that the first part of the seal is the Lord knows those who are his. Salvation does not begin with men. It begins with God. He planned it and he executed it. In Roman or in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4, he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. In James 1.18, in the, in the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. We cannot know God's truth until God has first laid hold of us and saved us from our sin by his grace alone. The second statement is, let everyone who names the name of Christ depend, uh, depart from iniquity. Again, as, as Ephesians 1.4 continues, God chose us that we would be holy and blameless before him. We can be assured that we belong to the Lord because we see him progressively working his holiness into our daily life. I'm changing. I'm different than I was a year ago and 10 years ago and 20 years ago. God is constantly growing me. I'm not where I want to be yet. But I'm growing. I'm growing in holiness. And so the foundation for using the Bible properly is that God knows us as his own and that through our diligent, careful study and application of his word of truth, we grow in godliness. A young man once was studying uh, the violin under a world-renowned master. And when he had his first big recital, uh, the crowds cheered after every, every number that he performed. But the young performer seemed uh, dissatisfied with that, with that cheering. And even after his final number, despite the applause, the, the musician seemed unhappy. And so as he took his bows, he was watching an elderly man in the balcony. And finally, the elderly one smiled and nodded in approval. And immediately, the young man beamed with joy. You see, he was not looking for the approval of the crowd. He was waiting for the approval of his master, the one who taught him how to play. Christians should be living for God's approval. We will be approved unto him as we use the Bible to grow in godliness. Are you growing as a craftsman? who uses God's word of truth accurately and skillfully to grow in godliness, the misuse of the Bible will lead to ruin. The proper use will lead to godliness and obedience. Let's pray.